morning, everyone. It's really good to see your faces. And if I can't see your face, it's really good to see your names. Like Lesoko said uh, before, my name is Reino. You've heard from me for the past couple of weeks. I have the privilege of uh, serving as pastor of Fellowship City, a privilege uh, that I really, really do appreciate. So our theme this morning is we are gospel-centered. So you guys will remember that I said over the course of these six weeks, we'll be unpacking who we are and what we are about. So we started by saying we are a family. After that, we said we are a missional community. After that, we said we have hope in our suffering. After that, we said the ministry and message of reconciliation is ours. And today, we are going to do We Are Gospel-Centered. Something that I'm really excited about as one of our distinctives, one of the things we hold to, uh, one of our foundations that we build our church on and this church plant on. And I'm looking forward to taking these three verses and showing you how much there is actually in these three verses. So like I always do, I would like to set the end goal for us just so that you guys know where we are headed to, right? Uh, I'm not a magician. I'm a preacher. Right, so I don't have to dish up something for you and then surprise you at the end with the outcome. I'm much rather just going to tell you where we're going so that you can keep track as we unpack the scriptures. So this is where we're headed. If we say we are gospel-centered, this is what we uh, mean. We say the truth of the gospel is the truth of the perfect birth, life, death, resurrection, ascension, and return of Jesus Christ. And being gospel-centered means by affirming him alone as Lord and Savior, we find salvation, meaning, purpose, and everlasting life. Now, I've said this to you before, but let me just say it again. Uh, we call these our key messages. So every word was carefully selected. Every word is spoken about and thought about. Because this, when we say this, we want this to be really clear. We want this to be clear for us who's in the church. We want this to be clear for people who might be looking into the church, wanting to join or exploring the faith. And we want this to be very clear to someone who knows absolutely nothing about the church. So when we say we are gospel-centered, this is what we mean, and this is where we are headed. Now, it is possible for me to actually end the sermon right here. Because everything I just said to you is biblical truth, absolutely. So we can take a break now and you guys can flesh it out and really talk through it in the breakout rooms because what I just said is definitely, definitely the truth. What I would like to do though, instead of just ending a sermon right here, is I would like to show you where this comes from. And I would also like to make a case for why we believe that this is true. And that's important. Why we believe that this is still good news and it is relevant for any person that still walks the face of this earth. That, so that's what I want to do. Where does it come from? And why is it? Why do we believe it's true? And why is it still relevant to each and every person? So the portion of scripture that we just read or the teaching text comes from the book of Acts. And Acts was written by a guy named Luke. Now, this is the second part of Luke's writing. The first part of Luke's writing is obviously in the New Testament called the gospel according to Luke. Now, in the shortest way, that can be described as a biography of Jesus, no? his life story. What he did, what he preached, what he was all about, and how the story ended with his earthly life. So that's part one. Part two is Luke saying, 
a movement started called the church, right? So I would like to write that to you as well. Oh, Theophilus, right? My friend, my patron, the guy that's sponsoring my writing project. So the part one was about Jesus and Jesus said stuff and Jesus sent some people. And now part two, I would like to tell you what happened after Jesus sent those people. So the portion of scripture we read this morning actually contains a very, very important introduction. Okay. And in this introduction, here's pretty much what Luke says. He says, this is what you need to know, Theophilus. Part one, you have to take note of it. You have to know the details of it. In part one, you'll find the words of Jesus. And in part two, you'll see what this group called the followers of Jesus did and how that ended up being the church and creating a movement. So in these three verses, we actually find a summary of the biography. And in the summary of the biography, we also find the essence of what happened. And we also find why it is good news. In only three verses, guys. I mean, Tandiwe probably read it in, what was it, 15 seconds and it was all done. But that is how loaded these three verses are. Okay, so. It's important for us to know that what Luke wrote about had, hasn't changed because it's a historical fact. It's not a story, right? It's not a piece of fiction that Luke thought up in a specific time and in a specific place. Luke wrote us some history, which is facts that come to us. Also, these facts that Luke wrote about, this message, this good news, is still being spread to people who have not heard it by other people talking about it. That's exactly how it happened in part two of the story. That's exactly how it happens today. I said this when I spoke about we are a missional community. So it started with a small group of people who spoke about it to other people, and then it exploded into a movement of thousands, eventually millions. And today we have a global religion called Christianity with more than 2 billion followers. It's also relevant for us, this little story, because I think, well, not actually, I think I know that the world that Luke lived in, the world that Luke wrote in, and the world where the church of Acts actually came into existence does look a lot like the world we live in today, right? Our world is still broken. It was broken back then. Our world is looking for a message of hope. It actually was uh, uh, looking for a message of hope back then. Our world is a pluralistic society. There's more than one religion. There's different gods that people can worship. And our world is increasingly becoming a little bit more hostile and hard towards saying, guys, listen, there's no your truth. There's only the truth. And we believe that the truth comes through the story of the Bible and through Jesus Christ. And that is the only truth that there is to accept. People are becoming more hard towards that posture. I'd right? be slipping into a mode of saying, why don't you just believe what you believe? And I'll believe what I believe. And we should just get along, right? It sounds very humanitarian. It sounds very kind, but it is actually not. Because if everyone has their own truth, then what is the truth? Right? <laughs> because I'm not going to bank my whole eternity on a truth. I want to bank my whole eternity on the truth. I want to bank my life, my meaning, my purpose, everything I do on the truth. I want to know, guys. Like, I want to know that what I believe is true. Now, that's why this story is still relevant to us. And I don't know if you've ever thought about this. This is kind of a nerd remark, so nerds unite. If you think about the timeline of history, 
we are actually still in a time that is a continuation of the story of the Bible. Have you ever thought about that? Like, if you page to the end of the Bible, which I can't do because I'm preaching from an iPad, but if you page to the end of the Bible, you'll see that this world we know, time, space, and earthly existence, the way we know it, will end. It will be made new. There will be a division, right, between heaven and hell, and the believers will be dwelling with God in His full presence in heaven for the rest of eternity. Like, that's how the story ends. We are part of the church, which means we are, like, before the last part of the Bible. N.T. Wright said that you can pretty much think about the Bible in six acts, which I, I like. He says you can think about creation, you can think about the fall, you can think about the, uh, uh, the people of God called Israel, that's three, and then you can think about Jesus, you can think about the church and the spirit, and you can think about the end of everything. And we are actually still part of the piece of history called the spirit and the church. We're still in it, which means that we carry this message which means that we should speak about this message, which means that we should always ask the question, so um, where does this message come from and why is it relevant to us? Okay, there's one verse that I would like you to focus on, verse three. Verse three says, he presented himself alive to them after his suffering by many proofs. It's a loaded, loaded sentence. He presented himself alive to them after his suffering by many proofs. Let me, let me make it simple. There is no Christian faith without death and without resurrection. We're going to get back to the slide I showed you earlier. Okay? So we speak about uh, birth, life, death, resurrection, ascension, and second coming. Yes, there is no Christian faith without those two things, death and resurrection. It is a historical fact. It is specific. It happened to one person, and one person was raised from the dead. He was a human being, a man like myself, speaking in front of you today, and his name was Jesus. And there was a time in history where he lived, and there was eyewitnesses to his life. There was eyewitnesses to his death. There was eyewitnesses to his resurrection. We know this to be true. And we need to hold that together. The fact that death and resurrection go together to tell the story of the Bible. I'll get back to that a little bit later. And also that there's a very specific, very exclusive piece of fact in history that we need to believe. But in its specificity and in its exclusivity, well, that was a tongue twister when I prepared my sermon, but I thought I nailed those two. In its exclusivity, it's actually very universal and very inclusive. Okay? Let, 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 me, let me give us an illustration here. And uh, I chose the illustration specifically for myself, right? So you can call me selfish if you want to. I think an airplane is a good illustration. And the reason why I chose an airplane is... I haven't flown in very long and I would like to fly again. I really would. I love it, but I haven't flown in so long and I don't know when I'm going to fly again. So there we go. An airplane. Think about this. An airplane. I want to fly to uh, King Shaka Airport in Kozulunatal. The airplane is open to anyone, right? Anyone can board a plane. Anyone can fly to King Shaka, but you can't do it when you want to. Right? So there's a specific time and a specific day and a specific plane that will get you there. And for that plane, 
you have to buy a ticket and you have to climb aboard. Do you feel my illustration? So it's like, yes, I want everlasting life. Yes, I want peace. Yes, I want redemption. Yes, I want salvation. You can have it. Any person on this earth can have it. It's open to anyone. But there's only one way of getting it, and that is believing in the death and the resurrection of Jesus, right? In faith, and then receiving it, and submitting to it, and trusting in it for your salvation. That's it. So I know the, the airplane illustration might not cover all of it, but in the same way that I say I want to get to uh, King Shaka Airport, to Kuzulu Natal, I have to go through a certain line to get there. Anyone can buy the ticket, and anyone can board the plane, but it's a specific time, it's a specific date, and there's no other way that you can get it. And that's why in the beginning of Volume 2, Luke says, listen, Theophilus, Everything that you're going to read about now is definitely going to blow your mind. But you won't understand it if you didn't read part one. You know what I mean? I'm going to tell you a story now, dude, about people believing, people being generous, people being empowered by the Spirit, people going to the ends of the world, people suffering for their faith, people overturning communities and cities and sharing good news and planting churches everywhere. But listen, I want you to know that it all started with this rabbi. And his name was Jesus. And he came from the sticks. And he was sent by his father, who is the creator and the sustainer of everything, for a very specific mission and a very specific purpose. And Theophilus, not only was he sent, he actually did what he was sent to do. And he was sent to die. And there's a huge backstory for why he had to die. And he was sent to be resurrected from the dead. And there's a real reason in the rest of the story why he had to be resurrected. But Theophilus, that is where it starts. The fact that that actually happened. Okay. Now think about this. Death and resurrection. Let me just run a few thoughts past you. So firstly, it's really important for us to know what the death of Jesus means why he died, and what he said about his own death. So think back of Luke 22. You might not have read it before, so I'll tell you what happens there. Right? So same guy writing it. In Luke 22, Jesus says, listen, guys, I am going to die. But here's the reason for it. My body will break for you, and my blood will flow for you, and this will atone for your sins. And not only will it atone for your sins, it will actually kickstart and put into place the new covenant that God makes with human beings. Right? Think about it, gents. This is Jesus now sitting around the table. God made a covenant in the Old Testament. He renewed his covenant continuously, and he has never broken his covenant. On the contrary, he's going to keep to his covenant by making a new one. So my body breaking, and my blood flowing, guys, that's the reason for it. That is a new covenant. Everything that God promised, you guys know the story you've heard so many times, read in synagogue, spoken about around the campfire, it's culminating in me. Now, on face value, thinking that someone has to die to atone for the sins of other people feels a little bit upside down, doesn't it? Like, why can't I just pay for my own sin? Make sense? I mean, that's justice for you. My sin, my payment, your sin, your payment. So why on earth would God choose to punish someone for other people's sins? It feels upside down. And it is upside down. 
because it's motivated by grace and it's motivated by love. It's motivated by sacrifice. It's motivated by the need to be intimate with human beings, which is something that we sometimes struggle to fathom because we are selfish human beings, often turned in on our our circles, often only wanting what we want, right? So it feels, just on face value, upside down. And I mean, this symbol of the cross, which is the symbol of Christianity, was actually a symbol of scandal, guys. It needs to be known. I mean, we wear it around our necks or around our arms. It's plated in gold and beautiful jewelry. Like in the first few centuries of Christianity, actually the first, yeah, the first two centuries of Christianity, it was a, it was a scandalous symbol. Because no Roman ever died on a cross. It was only slaves who died on crosses, and it was non-persons. It was like people who the emperor thought don't deserve to live. Just hammer them against a tree. It was a, it was a symbol of defeat. It wasn't a symbol of victory. Just think about this back in Luke, Luke 24, the last chapter of part one. Luke writes the story. I mentioned this last week when Lysachwana had our tag team. He writes the story about the two people walking to Emmaus. And the two people walking to Emmaus are shattered. Why? Because their Messiah was nailed to a cross. Defeat. Even though he said he was going to do it. And even though he said he was going to be raised from the dead. For them, that meant it's over. Like no one can come back from that. It was a scandalous, humiliating death. Like the guy we put our chips on. Didn't make it, right? And he didn't win. The other thing why death and the cross is such an important symbol for us, even though it's upside down, even though it seems scandalous, even though it doesn't seem powerful, on the contrary, it seems humiliating and weak, is our ethos as Christians, right? How we live are actually embodied and put on display in Jesus' death. Think about this. What is the way to the kingdom? (laughs) The way to the kingdom is the way of death. It's the way of picking up your own cross, right? It's the way of dying to self. It's all those upside down teachings of Jesus. If you want it, you should give it away, right? If you lose it, you'll gain it. (laughs) If you lost, you first. If you serve, you'll get. It's better to give than to receive. It's all upside down to our ears as modern day listeners, but we know this to be true. Like if you think about your life, the The biggest fulfillment you could ever feel and experience in this life is when you lay down your life for someone else. It's just how it is, guys. It is how it is. Whether it's in marriage, whether it's in family, whether it's at your job, whether it's in your social club, wherever you are, when you choose to lay down your life, that is when you experience life and you receive life and you experience life to the full. If we are gospel-centered church, we should always mention the cross. It is essential. It's what we base our faith on. Central to our faith. Guys, let me just say this to you, uh, to you who are part of the core group. If we ever preach a sermon and the word cross, Jesus, salvation, death and resurrection wasn't mentioned, then it wasn't a sermon. Then it was a great talk. Do you know what I mean? Then I could just upload it on my Instagram story and go, there's a little soul food for the day. But that's not the gospel. It has to have the cross. And in the same way that it has to have the cross, it also has to have the resurrection. Think about this. Why did Jesus have to raise, uh, why did Jesus have to be raised from the dead? We'll get back to this in Easter weekend as well. Because if he didn't, 
then none of his words and none of his promises would have been true. Think about this, guys. Jesus spoke, Jesus taught, Jesus promised. And Jesus said it will happen. And then he died. And by virtue of him dying, people thought, well, then blatantly he was wrong. Because the people who executed him was right. They had the last word. And then Jesus was raised from the dead and said, I am right. I have the last word and my promises will be true. Now, once again, someone being raised from the dead is a category breaker. Let's be honest, right? It is definitely, you guys know that emoji on WhatsApp where there's like half a face and then a blown mind. I love that emoji. That's the resurrection, guys. Mind blown. Like who has a category for that? A moment someone dies and they're like really dead three days and three nights and then get raised from the dead again. Even for the people in Jesus' time and even for us today, there is no category for it. Even his followers had difficulty in believing it. Have you guys ever read that part of the gospel attentively? Right? So Mary and two of the other ladies run back to the disciples and they say, listen, guys, we saw Jesus is alive. And what's the first thing that the disciples say? No, he's not. Like Jesus told them he's going to be raised from the dead, but they just wouldn't believe it because it's so, it's so mind-blowing to think that someone can defeat death. But it's something we have to come to grips with. It's something you have to believe. It's something that we accept by faith as Christians. It's the same way as boarding the plane, right? The way that I'll get to King Shaka is I have to get on the plane. And part of getting on the plane in terms of Christianity is believing that Jesus was raised from the dead. The evidence is overwhelming, says the Bible. There's many proofs. It's all locked up in verse 3 and the rest of the story. It is a fact. So how do I know that Jesus was raised from the dead? The Bible tells me so. 2,000 years of church history tells me so. And I know him as an exalted, alive Christ through the Holy Spirit. Like, I know. Can I prove it to you? I cannot. But do I believe it? Yes, I do. And how? Well, because of the overwhelming evidence of it. Paul saw an exalted Christ. The book of Revelation describes an exalted Christ. I know that exalted Christ. I know him as the vine. I know him as the shepherd. I know him as the light. I know him as the way. There's so many things to know about him. We'll be busy for the rest of our lives. But I can tell you that I do know him and I do know that he's alive. So how on earth can I know him if he wasn't raised from the dead? That's the fact of Christianity. It's the fact of the gospel. Now, I said this before, but let me just say it again. It doesn't have to be true to you. It's just true. <laughs> That's the weird world we live in. Listen. Christina, I'm just looking at your face now, so I'm mentioning you. That's great if it's true for you. Or, you know what? I actually can't believe in the gospel because it's not, it's not true for me. It doesn't have to be true for you. It is true. It's a fact. And when you hear the gospel or when the gospel is proclaimed to you, you really only have two choices. One is yes, I do believe, and the other one is no, I don't. And I reject the gospel. It has to be believed. It's like trusting the plane. How will I know that we'll get to King Shaka? Dude, get on the plane, sit in your seat, and fly. You'll get there. You won't have controls, but you'll get there. Because it is told to me that this plane goes there. And it's exactly the same way with faith. Faith is proclaimed 
to you, coming to you, saying, if you believe this, you will be saved. If you believe this, you will have eternal life. If you believe this, gone is the guilt and gone is the shame. I'm actually getting there now, so let me, do, uh, let me not um, run away to myself, run away from myself. Let me show you this. Let me show you this. So this is the Apostle Paul, right? So we did a lot of Jesus now, and we did some Luke. Let me just show you this, right? So this is Paul, difficult language, it always is, but really loaded. Now look what Paul says at the end of his first letter to the, to the Corinthians. Once again, stating it as fact, and see how this corresponds to Acts 1 and also to the end of Luke. He says, Now I would remind you, brothers, of the gospel I preached to you, which you received, in which you stand, and by which you are being saved, if you hold fast to the word I preached to you, unless you believed in vain. For I delivered to you, as of first importance, what I also received. And check this. What did I receive? That Christ died for our sins in accordance with the scriptures, that he was buried, that he was raised on the third day in accordance with the scriptures. That's it. Like that's what Paul bases every one of his nine letters on. Every sermon that he ever preached, every talk that he ever had is based on this fact. And this is exactly the same fact that Luke wrote about in, one, uh, in Acts 1. Verse 3. I think I've got a quote from C.S. Lewis here. Oh, I actually do. Always have to hoi in just a little C.S. Lewis here. Check what C.S. Lewis says. I love this. He says, I believe in Christianity as I believe that the sun is risen. Okay, so how do you know that the sun is risen? Well, you can see it. But then he says, not only because I see it, but because by it, I see everything else. By it, I see everything else. Life, relationships, purpose, meaning, work, everything looks different by the sight of the gospel and by the light of the gospel. And that is why we are a gospel-centered church. It holds, guys. It's enough for us to actually base our whole lives on this death and resurrection of this man called Jesus. And here's the cool thing. This death and resurrection that we ought to accept, that we ought to trust in, that comes to us as a fact, is embodied by a person. So it's not only a cognitive belief, it's an invitation. Come to me. Anyone on this screen who is a believer would know that your moment of conversion, your moment of repentance, your moment of submission wasn't just a cognitive exercise. It is a real relational experience of coming to the Father who loves his prodigal son. It's just how it is. You can't fight it. I mean, my experience was the same. One morning, like somewhere between 12 and 1 a.m., I said, Jesus Christ, just take all I have, right? There was no debate. There was no signing contract. There was no T's and C's. There was no needs communicated. It was, my life is a mess. I shall not do this anymore. Please just take me. And he went, absolutely. Come here, my boy. And that changed everything. Because I believed that he died for me. And I believed that he was alive. Like, why on earth would you speak to a God that wasn't resurrected from the dead? Because that's a dead God, right? We have a God that is alive. Just one quick sidebar, and then I'll land the plane for us. So history writers, if you like history, will tell you that it's really... Thank you, thank you. I, I do see that you saw that. I, I actually did that unintentionally, right? Pun not intended. But before I land the plane. So... Uh, history writers will tell you 
that it's really the resurrection of Jesus Christ that messed up everyone's minds through the course of history and from that point when Jesus was raised from the dead. Like many religions tried to speak about ethos, tried to speak about love, tried to speak about relationships, tried to speak about fulfillment. It was really the resurrection of Christianity that people went, whoa, 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 there's nothing like this. And to this day, guys, that's also true. No other world religion has this. A savior who was resurrected from the dead, who you can know personally. It's our faith that has it. No other faith offers that option. Okay. So I said in the beginning, I'm going to make a case for why we believe this is true. I think I made the case. The second thing that I said I was going to do is to speak briefly about why it's good news and why it's relevant for any person that still walks the face of this earth. And I'm going to do this by mentioning two quotes. I actually don't have them on the slides. If I can just navigate to that real quick. No. Um, I'm going to do this by mentioning two quotes, and then this will become the content for your discussions in uh, the breakout rooms. Okay? So firstly, two quotes that I think is descriptive of the human experience, uh, regardless of time and date. The first one comes from a, a writer. He's a well-known writer. His name is Julian Barnes. Um, he's a, he started out as an atheist. He called himself an agnostic later in his life. But he wrote a book uh, called Nothing to be Frightened of. And the book is a reflection on, on, on death and faith and, you know, what are we looking forward to? And he starts his book with this quote. I don't believe in God, but I miss him. I don't believe in God, but I miss him. Okay, so that's, that, that's one part of the human experience. So it doesn't matter how sophisticated your thinking is. There'll be a hole somewhere inside of you. They'll feel stoppy. Right? That'll feel relational, that won't feel scientific, left brain, and bulleted, but it'll be a longing for something more. The church reformers actually said that we all have this seed of religion inside of us. Just give it some water and it'll grow. So part of the human experience is wanting to be in a relationship with God. Is wanting someone and something to be in a relationship with something that is transcendent, something that is loving, something that is gracious, right? Second quote that I want to leave with you is a, a quote from Lewis Smedes. Now he's a theologian, pastor, and writer. He says, we feel guilty for what we do. We feel shame for what we are. That's also part of the human experience. I mean, let's face it, guys. If you close your door at the end of a day, and it's really only you, then feelings of guilt and shame well up inside of us. It's part of the human experience. It's part of the human existence. I did something and I feel guilty about it. Or I am some way and I feel ashamed of it. And I don't know how to fix it. Right? Like I can't fix the fact that I have this longing if you're not a believer. And if you are a believer, I can't fix the fact that I sometimes feel like a massive failure. Now, why is the gospel relevant then to us? Well, it's because the cross and the resurrection is the answer to both of these human experiences. Think about it. The cross is where the ground is level, right? It's an age-old quote. Might have been Leslie Newbigin. Might have been Jesus himself or Paul or one of the apostles. I don't know. Everyone always quotes it, but check this. The ground is level at the foot of the cross, right? So the moment you come to the foot of the cross, there's no better or worse, or stronger, or weaker. It's at the foot of the cross 
where all of us experience love, where all of us experience grace, where all of us experience forgiveness. So if you think about the, the Lewis Smead's quote, feeling guilty for what you do and feeling ashamed for what you are, the cross is the answer. Because it's at the foot of the cross that that gets wiped away. Where you are confirmed as someone who's created in God's image, who he sacrificed his life to, and who he loves so much that he sent his only son. Like, no more guilt and no more shame. It's taken away. So why, if it's part of our earthly human experience, would the gospel not be relevant if the gospel is the only fix for it? Well, let me, uh, uh, let me go back to the, the quote from Julian Barnes. The resurrection is the answer to missing a God who you don't believe in or who you don't know. Because you can know him through his resurrection. Think about it, guys. There was only a handful of people, probably a couple of thousand in the three years that Jesus was on earth, that could see God embodied, wrapped in flesh, eyewitnesses to his ministry. But all of us can know him through his Holy Spirit, we can know him as Father, we can know him as Creator, Sustainer, Rock, Love, Protector, Energizer, Source of Strength. We can know him as a Savior, a Teacher, right? Someone who gives us wisdom, someone who shows us the way. When Christina, when you said earlier, like, what am I today thankful of? I, it's just Jesus' kindness. His kindness and his compassion for the human condition just blows my head. Like, I cannot put anything before Jesus and make him say, oof, I don't know what's that, you know, what that's like. Nothing that I put in front of Jesus can be met with those words. On the contrary, it's always met with, dude, I know exactly how you feel. I've been there. been there myself. That's what the Bible teaches us. So you can know him. You don't have to miss this God that you don't believe in. So not only is it important for us to know where the gospel comes from, but it is important for us to know why it's still relevant. I want to leave you just with this one last scripture, and then I'll do a quick prayer for us. Love this scripture. It's in 1 John, so it's another writer in the New Testament. Can you see me making a case using the whole scope of the New Testament? Huh? Huh? Do you know what I mean? Proper theological training, guys. I use the gospels. I use the narrative. I use an epistle. And now I'm using a pastoral letter. Look what he says. He says, if we say we have no sin, we deceive ourselves and the truth is not in us. And here's the good news. If we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. That, my dear friends, is the good news. We believe in it. We are a gospel centered church and that means that we believe that the truth of the gospel is the truth of the perfect birth life death resurrection ascension and return of jesus christ and by affirming him alone as lord and savior we find salvation meaning purpose and everlasting life amen let me pray for us Lord Jesus, we stand in awe of the truth of your death and resurrection this morning. We are thankful that um, it was delivered to us. We are thankful that we can receive it. We are thankful that we can hear it again this morning. We are thankful that it's relevant to us. We are thankful that it takes away our guilt and shame. We are thankful that we never have to have a question mark when we say the word God anymore. 
but that we can know you intimately, personally, just because we believed and we repented and we received your word by faith. We thank you for it. We praise you for it. We praise you for our salvation. We praise you for your forgiveness. May these words take deep root in our hearts. Amen.